Take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 5 through 11. Now we, we kind of scratched into verses 5 through 8 last week, but it was brief. Um, it was good that we did it because it's, a, it's on the heels of the first four verses, which we'll start by reading uh, today. Um, but I wouldn't say that we gave verses 5 through 8 a full treatment. Um, in some ways, I'm not sure that we can. The, uh, if you have uh, been uh, either blessed or cursed uh, to listen to my preaching for any long amount of time, you'll know that there are certain passages that uh, tend to come up over and over again. And this uh, passage in Philippians chapter 2 is one of those. It comes to mind a lot. It comes to mind frequently for me. Um, it, there's a flow to it. I think it's a little poetic. Um, it's easy for me to remember these verses. I can't say that I've ever set out to memorize verse, verses 5 through 11. Um, they're, they're just verses that, that flow naturally to me. Um, I think they're... Um, they're beautiful in the way they summarize who Jesus is and what he did and what it's leading to. But in a vacuum, you kind of miss the point. Uh, verse 5 says, let this mind be in you. And so it's on the heels of the first four verses, which we looked at last week. What is the mind of Christ? What, what exactly are we being called to here? So again, I want to read the first four verses of chapter 2. Then we will read through verse 11, and then we'll pause and try to give a more thorough treatment of verses 5 through 11 this morning. Verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, that Paul basically saying, if you care for me at all, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. And we'll pause there. In other words, Paul is arguing that there is a mindset that Christian people should have, in fact, that they should share in common with one another. Um, a mindset of humility, a mindset of lowliness. Not that I am less valuable than someone else. It's not about I am worth less than someone else. But the interests of others I should prioritize over my own. Their burdens are more important to me. Their needs are more important to me than my own. That sense of humility, not a false humility that imagines that someone else is more important than I am. We're all sinners. Jesus died on the cross for you just like he died on the cross for me. Without him, you're destined for the same fate that I am. It's not a false estimation of value. It's an estimation of personal priority. The needs of others will be prioritized in my life over my own needs. And then we are told in verse 5, this mindset 
of the prioritization of others' needs over my own is actually the mind of Jesus. We saw last week that this is not the only place in the New Testament where that's pointed out to us, but it is where we are this morning. What is the mindset of Jesus? Well, you see it on display in the course of his life. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. When God became flesh and walked on the earth in the form of a man, he did not consider that robbery of his greatness. In other words, he did not consider it some great affront to his personhood. Instead, he took a position of humility and saw the interest and the needs of others as greater than his own. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. And the language, of course, we know this is not how it happened, but the language is as if Jesus woke up one day to find himself in human flesh. That's kind of language. Being found in the appearance, what would you do if you were God and then you woke up one day and you were merely man? But being found in appearance as a man. Again, he did not revolt at the robbery of this imposition. He didn't reject the idea that God would preside in flesh, but instead, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why would he humble himself and become obedient? Is he not God? Yes, but see, he took the form of a bondservant. And what should bondservants do? They should obey. And being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because of this mindset and because of where this mindset, what this mindset accomplished in the life of Christ, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above Every name. You can almost hear in that the wisdom of the Old Testament. Humble yourself in the eyes of the Lord and He will lift you up. Therefore, God has lifted Him up, has highly exalted Him, given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let us just pause for a second and recognize the miraculous progress of that statement in our own day and age. When Jesus died on the cross, He was a rejected Savior, a rejected Messiah. He was stripped naked and crucified rejected by his own people. The rest of the world had no idea who he was. There were people in North America with no idea who he was. Natives in Australia, no idea who he was. 
Alaska indigenous people, no idea who he was. People on islands throughout the world, no idea who Jesus was. Roman emperors with no idea who Jesus was. When he died on the cross, we are told there were 120 people who were following him in an upper room after his crucifixion. 120 people. This verse tells me that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How do you go from being a crucified poor man to the name worshipped by nearly half the human population of the world? Well, we know how other religions have spread. At the edge of a sword, they've spread regionally and locally through prophets and mysticism and localized places and times, but you've never seen anything like what happened with Christianity. Unless we say, well, the Crusades, or well, the Inquisition, or well, this, or well, that, those were all after the name of Jesus had spread throughout the known world of the Roman Empire. This was well on its way. How did Islam become popular throughout the Middle Eastern world? Well, Muhammad conquered at the edge of a sword. That's how. The world has never seen anything like what's happened with the name of Jesus. There had been false messiahs. There had been people who had been crucified. There had been false saviors. I doubt any of us recollect any of their names. But at the name of Jesus, we have spent the better part of an hour worshiping already today. And we join in worship with people all over the world on the Lord's day. So let's just pause and acknowledge the miraculous progress of the name of Jesus Christ. Um, I want to begin this morning by talking about the revelation of God. Because to me... That's what I think about when I read these verses, the revelation of God. Um, if you go outside and you look up at the sky and the trees and the stars at nighttime, if you kind of watch something powerful like a solar eclipse or a baby deer walk across the way, um, if you see something special, something that pulls at your heartstrings and you don't know why, you might get a sense of the fact that God can be recognized in creation. There is something spiritual about creation. Um, if you go and you look at the ocean, and you just, first time you see it, and you just kind of look at it, and you listen to it, and you see the vastness of it, there is something, at least for me, spiritual about that. There is enough in the created world to look at and to recognize the vastness and the power and the glory of a God who designed this place. And, you know, in the Old Testament from thousands of years ago, we're told that the heavens declare the glory of God and, and, and that when you look at the world, you can see order and you can see design and it's amazing. But how much more so is that the case for you and I? I mean, we live in a technological age where we can look at the mere building blocks of living organisms and see a level of design that in the Old Testament would have, you know, amazed. Um, 
I remember in my freshman year of college when I uh, learned more about DNA and just how complex it was and how little we understood of it. And I remember learning about uh, DNA and the, the makeup of our body and what makes life possible, let alone human life possible, and being overwhelmed at the design around DNA and thinking how absurd it would be to think that by random chance this level of order at the molecular level could emerge. And, and, but then I was even more amazed as the course went on and I realized that as the skin cells or the liver cells in my body multiplied, which is required every day. You know, we're basically like, you know, a new body every, <laughs> every so many months because all the cells have been replaced by new cells. We're constantly dying and living. And when I learned about that process, I remember learning not only are we made up of complex DNA, but we have uh, an mRNA code that corrects genetic mutations in our DNA code so that when my body makes a cell that's malformed, as it should not be, my body inside of it has a corrective coding in it to correct the, the malformation because any other mutation might kill me. And in fact, the tragedy of cancer is when that corrective code does not do what it's supposed to do and cells multiply in a way they shouldn't multiply and you have tumors. Like your body constantly right now is making cells, millions of cells with mutations that if not corrected by mRNA would kill you. And yet they're constantly being corrected. And you think about the complexity of this. And yeah, man, it's one thing to look up at the stars and to think that if we were just a fraction off axis, if this planet were just a fraction off axis, the conditions of life would not be possible. But it's another thing entirely to realize at any split second, <laughs> my genetic coding could fail to make a correction it's supposed to make and I could be afflicted with cancer. And I have actually been in this condition my entire life hanging on by a thread of God's design. So yeah, I'm amazed when I think about creation and the world around us. It's amazing to me, and um, I agree with the psalmist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And yet, where would we be if our revelation of God was left to what we could observe from creation? Where would that practically leave us? Raising our hands to some pantheon in the sky, some, some Star Wars-like force. Where would that truly leave us? Because there are important things about God that you cannot identify merely in creation. You cannot identify God's purpose for creation, merely by looking at creation. You cannot see His design and what He has done and what He will do merely by looking at creation. And you cannot come to grips with evil in the world merely by looking at creation. Unless we just project that evil outwardly, more appropriately, we cannot come to grips with the evil we find in our own lives merely by looking outwardly at creation. And so God has revealed himself. 
I grew up and um, I like sports movies. I always have liked sports movies. Um, inundate my family with sports movies. I grew up and I loved the movie Rudy. Watch it a bunch of times. Cry at least twice, most of the time when I watch it, but, you know, that's me. Sorry, it is what it is. like the movie Rudy, and uh, if you're going to watch the movie Rudy, try to disconnect the Lord of the Rings from what you're seeing. That came later, and will skew your idea of what's happening, but just try to put it in a vacuum. But those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, good, but, but I love the movie Rudy, and yet there's a time in this, so the, it's about this guy who's trying to make the Notre Dame football team, which sounds, you know, silly, you know, so, but, but to this kid, it's a huge deal for a lot of reasons, and to make the Notre Dame football team, he first has to get accepted to the Notre Dame college, and that's uh, not an easy thing for this guy, um, and he keeps going to a priest, and he keeps asking the priest for advice, and the priest is giving him advice, and well, do this, and well, join the, and, he, and all throughout the first part of the movie, it's, it's this guy doing everything he can to get accepted into Notre Dame. And finally, he's done everything that he could, and it's his last chance to get accepted because he's moving along in school, and they don't accept transfers beyond a certain grade level. So this is it. And he's put in his request, and he's sitting in a, you know, a sanctuary, and the same priest comes up to me. How are we doing? You know, he's talking to him, and, and they, you know, Rudy just lays out his heart. You know, I, I've done it. You know, have I done everything I can? If I did? And the priest is telling him, pray, and, and, but he's like, there's got to be something else. And, <laughs> and the priest, this is what the priest says to him, which at one point is, is true. The priest says, Rudy, in all my years of study, I have learned two things that are indisputably true. One, there is a God, and two, I am not him. <laughs> and what he's trying to tell this kid is, <laughs> you can't control this circumstance. You may want this as much as you possibly can, but this is not up to you. There is a God, and I'm not him. And yet, pastorally, when I hear that, I think, how sad life would be if that was truly all we could know about God. How hopeless that life would be if all we could really discern about God is He's there and He's not me. God has given us revelation in the form of the Bible. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. He has given us Scripture, Holy Scripture. I believe this Scripture is unassailable and infallible. I believe every word of it. There's nothing like the Bible in all of human history. There are other religious books. There are no other books like God's Word. Not in tone, not in character, not in uh, the fullness of it, not in the vastness of it, and certainly not in the preservation of it. There is nothing like the Bible. This is what Hebrews 1 says. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And what the author of Hebrews is recognizing is that it is special that God has spoken by prophets and revealed Himself in His Word and told us that good and evil are real and this is what they are, has explained to us the reason of sin and has explained to us a plan of dealing with it. 
that God has revealed himself and yet in these last days has spoken to us by his son. What is special about God's revelation in the Bible? Well, I'll summarize it in two ways. Number one, it tells us that life is not pointless. If God were merely a foreign being, supernatural to us and far above us, who we had no other personal or direct revelation from, then we could honestly say that life is nothing more than whatever you make of it. It's nothing more than whatever you make of it. But because God has revealed Himself in His Word, we are given a standard by which we must live our lives and a purpose to which we are called. So that now when we ask ourselves, what is the meaning of life? We have a revelation from God on how to pursue this thing that we call living, humanity. Life is not pointless. Life is not, well, this guy wants to do this thing and this lady wants to do this thing. No, life is about glorifying a creator who made you with a purpose. Your life is not aimless. God has a desire for your life. You will either achieve it, you will either participate in that, you will either glorify God by obediently following Him, or you will not, but it is not without purpose. And the second thing, good and evil are not mere constructs of society. Every once in a while, I was talking to someone last night, every once in a while you run into folks who don't want to deal with the moral statements of the Scriptures. And so how they silence the moral authority of the Scripture is they say, well, you have no right to judge. This person has no right to judge. For me, this is what I think is right. For you, that's right. And we shouldn't step on anybody's toes. It's right for me. This is something else is right for someone else. We shouldn't make moral statements authoritatively in one direction or another. In other words, good and evil, right and wrong, are not real. It's up to everyone individually to decide what is good or what is evil. And if I look at something and I say, well, this is good, this is permissible, then for me it's permissible. But if I look at it and I say, this is bad, then for me I shouldn't do it. But I have no right to appeal to any higher authority about morality, about good or evil. Here's the problem with that. One of many. If right and wrong, good and evil, are truly human constructs, if there is no God, if there is no higher authority, if right and wrong are merely evolutionary ideas mixed with practical life experiences, and people figuring out for themselves what they think is good or evil, then what right do you have to condemn anyone else? You say, well, I don't want to condemn anyone else, really. You would not condemn Hitler. You would not condemn the murderer. You would not condemn the rapist. You would not condemn genocide. If right and wrong are merely figments of our imagination, things that we use in society for the functional good of community, if stealing is wrong because it hurts society, and so we've declared it to be wrong, if murder is wrong because it hurts society, and so we've declared it to be wrong, if that's it, if that's the level of depth to our sense of morality, then what right do you have to judge anyone else in any way? 
Nazi Germany didn't think that it was wrong to kill six million Jews. It wasn't against their law. They decided it was in the benefit of their society. Who are you to condemn them? You might stand on your moral high ground now and say, well, we won the war, so we can say they're wrong. But is that really the great height of your moral principles by brute force and strength? Where does that leave you when someone with more strength than you comes and crushes your little world with no, argu- no moral argument against them? That's for sure. If there is no such thing as good and evil, if there is no higher authority than what we make it out to be, then everything is permissible. Everything. The head of bioethics at a major institution in the United States found himself in hot water in the 1990s because he wrote a paper at the time in the 1990s advocating for the right to abort children up to two and three years old. You say, what? I mean, I understand the argument for abortion before birth, but how could anyone argue for the right to abort two and three-year-olds? Well, he's simply more intellectually honest than others. He doesn't believe in a God. He doesn't believe in any ultimate right or wrong. And a two- or three-year-old offers little of value to the larger society. If we are in biology and in ethics merely trying to do what's best for society, then it stands to reason that there might be some two- and three-year-olds who represent more of a cost and inconvenience to society than, you know, a pig, which you might slaughter for food. And that was his argument. He didn't lose his job, by the way. He kept it. He didn't renounce his beliefs. He's simply more intellectually honest than others. But see, most of the world wants to straddle a fence, whereby they say, eh, I'm not sure about God. Eh, I'm not sure what to believe. But I embrace, whether they realize it or not, the Judeo-Christian morality of our day is ultimately good. The Judeo-Christian morality of our day will not live without the Judeo-Christian God. In some sense, whenever someone tells me that they're an atheist and they don't believe in the revelation of God, for me, I always come back to an argument like the one I'm making now whereby I ask, so do you really believe that life is ultimately meaningless? Do you really believe that there is no such thing as right and wrong? Is everything permissible as long as society deems it worthy? Most people don't. Why? Because the law of God is written in our hearts, and yet apart from the law of God given to us here, we would be morally compromised. It's amazing what the human conscience alone can excuse. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. This is why Jesus is called the Word of God. If in the Bible, God is revealing himself to a creation that would otherwise only know him from looking at birds and stars. If the Bible is God's revelation to mankind, then Jesus is by far God's better revelation. Jesus, who not only 
tells us about God, but who is God in the flesh, come to speak in creation. This is Jesus. Listen, if, turn there if you'd like to Hebrews chapter 1, but listen to what this passage goes on to say about this Jesus. God, who at various times, in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things. That's Jesus, the Son of David, the Prince who is to inherit everything. That is the Son of David, whom He has appointed to be the heir of all things. The next phrase, through whom he has made the worlds. This is the Son of God who is the Almighty God, the Creator. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. This is Jesus, the Son of God. The express image of the Father's glory. The express image of his person. He had by himself purged our sins. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. You find these passages in the Bible that call our attention, like in these poetic, majestic, four and five verse sections. And they're like wake up calls, like, wake up, man, wake up, woman. Do you realize who Jesus is? Or have you forgotten? Have you become so familiar with the name of Jesus that you've lost sight of the revelation of God in Christ and what that means? There is the book and there is the man. This is the point John's making in John 1.14 when he says, And the word became flesh, the revelation of God, the word of God became flesh in that God revealed himself to us in a man. The The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, the revelation of God is full of grace and truth. Apart from knowing God, there is no grace and truth. Apart from seeing God for who he is, there is no grace and truth. But in the person of Jesus Christ, the full revelation of God's grace and truth are ours. In John chapter 5, Jesus says this of himself. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And he's talking about Pharisees who are in rejection of him, but who love this. They love the scriptures, what God had revealed of himself through prophets. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. He is the ultimate revelation of God. 
This is what I'm drawn to when I think about Philippians chapter 2. Jesus taking the form of a man and coming to this earth, humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. Um, I want to read you a passage from Isaiah 53 because it leads into how I want to conclude. Now, we know Isaiah 53. We are familiar with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the Old Testament prophecy about the suffering of Jesus, what Jesus would endure at the cross. And yet there's a phrase in Isaiah 53 that Jesus himself seems to speak to in John chapter 10. And I want to read up to that phrase. And then close by calling your attention to the implications of it. Now, in Isaiah 53, the prophet writes, verse 1, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Tender plants don't grow up out of dry ground. In other words, in a society devoid of worship of the one true God, Jesus would be born. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't draw people to himself with his wonderful appearance or his majestic speeches or his flowery appeal to their senses or their desires. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's not someone whom you would have thought one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that this man is Lord. No, he was despised and rejected. He did not conduct himself in the pleasure of a conquering king. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Now, this is a prophet of Israel, and he's speaking on behalf of Israel, the people who rejected Jesus. And he's speaking prophetically of that rejection of Jesus. And he's testifying on behalf of Israel. We hid our faces from him. We did not consider that there was any glory to be found in him. He was despised, he repeats, and so we did not esteem him. How could the Messiah be despised and rejected? How could the Messiah suffer? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In other words, this is the prophet offering repentance. Surely, from what we know of Christ now, what we saw as a man smitten by God because of his own unworthiness, his sorrow was our sorrow. His grief was our griefs. He was bearing our burden. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him. When we watched him bearing this burden, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When we saw him bearing our burdens, we thought this is God's rejection of him. 
Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. All the clarity of the cross. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. Then this is the phrase that I believe Jesus is speaking to in John 10, where we'll close. All we like sheep have gone astray. We are all like the mindless little lambs. He's speaking on behalf of Israel here. We are like the mindless flock that wanders away for no other reason than why not? (laughs) We're not compelled to wander away. There's no logical reason for us to wander away. It is merely our default position to wander away. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of this turning away from God, all of this wandering from God, all of this abandoning of God, like sheep scattered around the wilderness, all of the offense of Israel, which has left God mindlessly, all of the offense, the Lord has laid on Him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Well, this metaphor about sheep and shepherds, Jesus calls to mind in one of his own final sermons. And in John 10, this is how he identifies himself. It'll be familiar, but I'll read it anyway. I am the good shepherd. We might say pastor. Pastor, shepherd are the same same language, same wording. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, that's what Isaiah 53 said. That he lays down his life for the sheep. Again, Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here in John 10, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14. Verse 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. That's Philippians 2. In being found in the form of a man, he became obedient even to death on a cross. That is the mind of Christ. He esteems the needs of the sheep above his own. In verse 10 of John 10, hear the words of Jesus, this great shepherd. He says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. This is an amazing thing. God has revealed himself in Christ so that you may have life and have it more fully. And let me tell you something, just as if life would be pointless if all you knew of God is some force-like existence. Just as knowing God revealed in scriptures gives us a sense of purpose and meaning in our life, true meaning. Again, (laughs) we've beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. Just as knowing God gives us purpose, knowing intimately the person of Jesus 
even more so. This is abundant life to be had in fellowship with Jesus. Verse 32 of Luke 12 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. (laughs) What a trite thing to say to a bunch of disciples who are afraid. Do not be afraid, little flock of sheep. It is your Father's good will to give you the kingdom. Now, there are some, I'm sure, sitting here today who don't know Jesus as their Savior. Well, they know that there are sinners. And they've heard what that means. And they've been compelled enough by what they have heard to come back week after week. But they don't know God revealed in Christ. They don't know their Savior. They do not have life more abundantly. If that's you this morning, I plead with you. Give your life to Jesus Christ. He is a good shepherd, not a taskmaster. He is lowly in mind. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. You will find rest for your soul in this relationship. You will find life and you will find it more abundantly than the life that you know now. He will deal with your fears and your insecurities and your guilt. He will deal with them first doctrinally by teaching you the truth of these things. But then He will also deal with you personally. He will transform who you are gradually over time. You will live a life of meaning and you will inherit the kingdom of God. But be warned, if you reject this suffering servant and you choose to wallow in your own sin, making life for yourself, whatever you decide it should be, then you will give an account to this righteous judge for your rejection of his son. You will give an account for this rejection and you will be held accountable for it. Eternity in hell separated from God will be the judgment of this rejection. I do not wish that for you. The Lord does not wish that for you. He has revealed himself in his word and through the preaching of his word to you this morning. And so I would plead with you. Confess your sin before the Lord. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the grave. Count the cost and commit your life to his service. You will be saved. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we speak of salvation sometimes as if it were merely fire insurance, a hope of avoiding hell. And yet we would be so pitied if that were all it were. But in knowing you, we recognize purpose and meaning in our life where before we might have only seen struggle and difficulty. You give a fragrance to the life that we live, a divine scent 
so that even when we don't understand what you're doing, we know that you're working. By faith, you direct our paths and make what we do profitable far beyond our own recognition. Yet oftentimes, you give us glimpses of what it is you've done in our labor. You are compassionate and merciful. You are kind and generous. You are not quick to dismiss your servants. You are not damning and condemning of them. You do not treat us merely as household guests in your kingdom, but when we come to you by faith, you adopt us as sons and daughters into your family. You become to us a father. You shower us with love. You demonstrate your grace and you are faithful. You never leave. You never forsake us. You never abandon us to our own devices. Thank you, God, for your great faithfulness. Help those of us who are yours to be faithful to you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.